All right, we're going through the Old Testament. We're up to 2 Kings chapter 6. So if you're following along in your Bible, we're up to 2 Kings chapter 6. We stopped last time. Uh, we had a chance. We were looking at the floating axe head. It was a very unusual story, but it was a faith-building story too. And if you remember, uh, Elisha's students wanted to build a Bible college, basically. That's what they were involved in doing when they had problems with the axe head coming off. And I was talking to Rich last time after that study, and he pointed out, you know, that these guys were actively involved in building their own Bible college rather than some college students we see in our country today who are protesting and rioting and destroying property. So it's interesting and encouraging to see these guys that were so into the Lord and wanting more of his word and that, that they were actually involved in building a place to learn like that. Okay, so uh, let's jump in. We got to verse 8 last time, so let's jump right in there. 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Now the king of Syria was making war against Israel, and he consulted with his servants, saying, My camp will be in such and such a place. So these camps he's talking about, they were in places where they were having some border raids against certain cities. And it was like they were doing back in chapter Five, verse 2, if you want to look back there a second. It says, um, I know I got that chapter 5 in here somewhere. Uh, chapter 5, verse 2, and the Syrians had gone out on raids and they had brought back captive a young girl from the land of Israel. So these guys were kind of known for going out and raiding places. This was not an all-out war, but they were consistently attacking some of the border cities and kind of just robbing them and doing what they could to get from the, the folks here. And now they're kind of working over the area of Israel. So verse 9, <clears throat> and by the way, the uh, commander through the king there, he's telling people, we're going to set up here. Here's where we're going to attack next. And he's got his plans and drawing them out. So verse 9, and the man of God sent to the king of Israel. So here we got the king of Syria making plans to do some uh, attacks here. And the man of God, Elisha here, he sent to the king of Israel saying, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are coming down there. Then the king of Israel sent someone to the place in which the man of God had told him. Thus he warned him, and he was watchful there, not just once or twice. So the Lord would tell Elisha what the Syrian army was up to, and then Elisha would pass the warning on to the king of Israel about it. Then the king would send out some scouts, which makes logical sense here, to check out Elisha's intel. And the king found out, sure enough, every time Elisha gave him this warning, that it was dead on. And we're not surprised by that. You know, the Lord's, he's always right on the money. But it's kind of funny that the king had to check it out each time just to make sure, you know. You'd think you'd be confident after a while that this guy's got perfect intel. He knows exactly what's going on because he's getting it from God, you know. Now, this is all grace coming from the Lord here, right? Because Israel was not walking with the Lord at this time. They were still fully into idolatry. But the Lord was still kind to them, and he was warning them about these attacks from the enemy. So that is the unconditional love that the Lord has for his people. So if you've ever wondered if the Lord has continued to be kind to you, even when you were in a backslidden state, you know, uh, the answer is a profound yes. You know, and the story here is one place you can go to to see evidence of that. Now, at least the king of Israel 
he had enough sense to listen, uh, at least enough to check things out. He could have stubbornly refused, you know, and said, I'm not paying any attention to anything you say. But had he done that, he'd have walked right into a trap, apparently a number of times, and some of his cities would have suffered great loss. So we would hope that people would listen to the Lord when we pass on warnings to them too, because God knows what he's talking about, and he's not kidding, right? But you think how this must have frustrated the king of Syria, the guy who's making all these war plans, and every time he plans something, he finds out they got troops, you know, set up there, and he's not going anywhere. So he's, he's, he's fully prepared to do something here, but he's not happy about what's going on. Because every time he thinks he's got a plan, the, the plan's falling apart on him. So verse 11 goes on, Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria, with all his plans here that weren't working, his heart was greatly troubled by this thing. And he called his servants, and he said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? So he thinks... There must be a mole in my camp, <laughs> you know, because it, he makes these war plans secretly. But it's almost like Israel knows he's coming before he tells his own troops what they're going to do. And it, it makes sense that he'd logically think that one of his soldiers, one of his servants, somebody must be a traitor and they must be selling information to Israel. But you know, it's funny because I've heard more than one pastor tell me this. They said that they've had new visitors come to the church, you know, on a Sunday morning, and uh, they actually got mad because the pastor's message really put the finger on them where they were at and what they were going through in their life. And they thought for sure somebody here must have told the pastor we were coming today, even though they didn't tell anybody they were coming, you know. But I like what this one pastor said. They just don't realize that the Lord reads everybody's mail, you know. So he already knows what's going on in every one of our lives. And that's the truth, they didn't, I mean, wow, you can't pull nothing past the Lord. So verse 12, one of his servants, and I love it that you keep seeing these servants come up and they're in the background, but they got some answers, man. One of these servants said, none, my Lord, like there's nobody that's given out the intel, O king. And he, he somehow has found out what's going on, says, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. <laughs> so a servant here is it's so cool. He's the one that actually tells Israel's secret success here. And the secret is, it's Elisha's God, you know, that's hearing every secret plan. And he's having Elisha warn the king. So this God is able to hear your most secret thoughts, even those in the privacy of your bedroom. You know, it's like he's hearing everything. You think it, he's got it, right? And that's our God, you think about it. That is so cool. Nobody, not even a powerful king, can hide anything from God, you know? So nobody can slip anything past the Lord. You know, there are enemies of Israel and there are enemies of America right now that are making plans against us. And God can make those plans known if he wants to, and he does a lot of times, gives intel amazingly, right? So they aren't keeping anything secret from the Lord. That'd be a good idea to, to stay on the Lord's side, right? <laughs> so he got that protection from me from the Lord. Verse 13 goes on. So he said, go and see where he is. So this is the king now. He's going to try to do something to make his plans better. He says, go and see where he is. They want to go find Elisha, that I may send and get him. And it was told him, saying, surely he is in Dothan. 
I think it's funny his servants have all this intel that they apparently haven't bothered to tell the king until he started asking questions, right? So he tells, I know where he's at. And I think this is funny that the king wants to capture Elisha. And he, he figures in his mind that this will solve all my problems if I just get this guy out of there, right? <laughs> but how do you sneak up on a guy that knows every step you're about to take, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, that doesn't make a lot of sense. But if you think about it, it never makes sense for anybody to come after the people of God, right? The lost world doesn't get that. Even though God gives very clear warnings in the Bible not to mess with his kids. Now, verse 14 goes on. Therefore, he sent horses and chariots and a great army there. Now, this is all to capture one guy, right? And they came by night and they surrounded the city. <laughs> so the king's logic again was that if he sent a big enough army, and if they could sneak up on him by the darkness of night, then they would have no problem capturing Elisha. <laughs> but they're about to find out that there is no army that is so big that God doesn't find out about what's going on. And there's no night that is so dark that the Lord can't see you coming. You know, he even sees your plans ahead of time, and he will conquer your plans. <laughs> Verse 15. <clears throat> lost my spot here. Uh, verse 15, I'm sorry guys, I wanted to warn you today too, if words come out that are not matching up with what's true, fill in the blanks because you know just my memory is doing funny things again there. So verse 15, when the servant of the man of God arose early and went out, there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. So Elisha's servant, he didn't know this was coming and apparently Elisha didn't tell him so as the servant walks outside in the morning, probably going to get a breath of fresh air, maybe go get some water or something at the well or whatever, he sees that they're completely surrounded. And the servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? <laughs> so from the perspective of Elisha's servant, this looked really bad. He saw this huge army, and he knew that they were completely surrounded, so that meant there was no way to escape. Okay, And besides that, this great army had many chariots, which would be equivalent to our modern-day tanks. So this is, this is heavy-duty stuff here. This servant was obviously scared and probably figured that he was not going to live to see tomorrow. And yet he's thinking, I'm with the man of God here, so what's going to happen? I mean, God must be doing something. I don't get it, but there must be something. So verse 16. So Elisha here, he answers, Do not fear. For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. <laughs> Do not fear. Elisha tells him that because there is a spiritual thing going on here that's greater than the physical circumstances that he could plainly see. And we'll see all that unfold in a second here. But at this point, the servant wasn't aware of his spiritual surroundings. He didn't know what was going on spiritually. He could just see the physical things going on. And that happens to us a lot, doesn't it? I mean, the physical is very plain. A lot of times it's right in your face. But there's a spiritual thing going on too that we don't see, and yet we know by faith that it's going on and it's there. So I'm pretty sure that many of us are not aware of our spiritual surroundings either most of the time. You know, it's not on the forefront of our minds to think, okay, what's going on? We got angels in here, we got all this stuff going on. God's in here, he's with me all the time, he's walking down the street with everything. We usually don't think through all that stuff, right? 
So these passages are good reminders to us that there's more going on than you can see with your eyes. So don't get so hung up on what you see in the circumstances, right? Now his servant here, this is, this is one of the amazing passages I love. We're going to see a little bit here and it's going to continue on a little further in the passages to come. Lord willing, next time we get, get further. His servant only saw one option at this point. We're surrounded. They got heavy duty military. We got nothing. So his only option was death. <laughs> you know, what do we have here? But God has options that he hasn't seen yet. And that is so important for us to get, you know, especially I think as we're, we're praying for people that may have suicidal thoughts and that, you know, uh, there's options that they have not seen because God has options they haven't found yet because they haven't sought the Lord on it and had him say, Lord, I need your help. Please help me out of this mess. I've dug a hole so deep I don't see a way out, but God's got options, okay? So that's one thing you catch here and kind of keep that in the back of your mind as we go through this passage and the next passage is there. Look at the people and the options they see and then look at the options God has that they don't know about until he opens the door and, and reveals it, okay? So verse 17 goes on. Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. <laughs> so he prays and he asks the Lord, please let him see the spiritual side of what's going on here. You know, it's so neat. We see there is a, this shows us, there is a spiritual reality as well as a physical reality. And the spiritual is higher than the physical. We need to hold on to that thought. When we realize that as believers, we, that we always have the Lord with us. He has never left us from the moment we trusted Christ. He has been in us, not just alongside of us. He's been in us every moment since then, okay? That's the spiritual reality. We may not see it, we may not feel it, but we know by faith it's true, okay? So if we, we grab onto that, and I mean, he's always with us. You know, Jesus said he would never leave us, he'd never forsake us. Then we really understand why the Lord keeps telling us, don't be afraid, don't be afraid. And that's what Elisha is trying to get across to this guy here. And I'm sure the first time he said, don't be afraid, the guy's like, are you kidding me? Did you see the army? And Elisha's, in his mind, I'm sure he's like, you haven't seen the real army yet. <laughs> Wait until you see the real one. So he did do that. And encouragement for us, you know, our Lord is still on the throne. And his presence is constantly with us. <coughs> Excuse me. So why should we ever really be afraid, you know? And we may not see things with our eyes like this servant did, but we can walk by faith, simply trusting what the Lord says in his word. And the Lord's never failed, right? Anytime he said something, he's done it. So we can trust that and believe on him. And the Lord watches over us how often you think? Always, okay? So if things are happening around us, it's only because God's allowing it. I mean, we can pray, we can ask the Lord to give us insight into our situation. And the Lord promises to lead us if we're willing to trust him, right? That passage you read in James, if you read further, the Lord says, ask for wisdom, I'll give it to you. You know, don't doubt believe I'm going to give it to you, and I will. So God's presence is always with us. We can go to God's word and ask him to show us what he wants us to see, and he'll do that. If we're sincere and asking him, why would the Lord hide that from us, right? He loves us. So let's go on verse 18. So when the Syrians came down to him, 
Elisha prayed to the Lord, and he said, strike this people, I pray, with blindness. <laughs> and <coughs> he struck them with blindness according to the word of Elisha. Now, isn't it amazing that Elisha just prayed for his servant's eyes to be opened, and now he prays the Lord to blind their enemies. <laughs> what an amazing strategy, you know, to have your enemies where they can't really see clearly. That pretty well disables them. <laughs> you know, they're not going to be... I've never heard of a blind army that's going to come after somebody. You, know, you probably don't have to worry. Just be very quiet when you sneak out of the room and you're good, right? Here we see the spiritual power overruled the physical power, even though the physical seemed more powerful at first. You think about that. A lot of times our circumstances seem more powerful. But we pray and we ask the Lord to help us do and show us what's going on we find out that God's way is so much more powerful than any circumstance we face. And the blindness the Lord brought on here was more powerful than all of their military might and their powerful military weapons. Those things weren't very good once the Lord took away their sight. And apparently they were blinded just to a point where they could kind of see a little bit because Elisha's going to lead them to where he wants them to go. So it wasn't a total blindness apparently, but enough that they were incapacitated to do any fighting. So verse 19, now Elisha said to them, so these guys can't see, right? They're not aware of what's going on. This is not the way, nor is this the city. Follow me and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. <laughs> now some people wonder if Elisha was being deceptive here. And they're, they're good folks on both sides of this one, you know. But if you think about it, he was basically saying, the man you really need to see is the king of Israel. I mean, I'm just a go-between guy here and... You really need to see him. And the city you need to go to is actually in Samaria. This is not Samaria. This is a side town. This is Dothan, okay? So you need to be in Samaria. So that's right where he led them. Very interesting uh, what he did here. Verse 20, so it was when they had come to Samaria that Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw. <laughs> and there they were inside Samaria. <laughs> <clears throat> so Elisha prayed for them to be blinded, and the Lord answered him. And then Elisha play, prayed for the Lord to remove their blindness, and the Lord answered that prayer too. And when the Lord opened their eyes, these guys must have been totally shocked to find out where they were. They thought they are going to wake up with their eyes open in a place like Dothan, you know, standing before Elisha here. And, and they thought it would just be one of the outlying towns. And here they find themselves in the very center of the capital city of the northern kingdom of Israel. Not what they were expecting at all. So verse 21 goes on. Now when the king of Israel saw them, so now he's realizing they brought all these guys in here and they're not fighting, they're just standing there, they can't even see till just now. When the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, my father, shall I kill them? Shall I kill them? I mean, he's kind of stunned and shocked, like what am I supposed to do? Should I kill these guys? Should I kill them, you know? Now, the king of Israel, he's, he's so stunned at first, too. So his first thought is, I guess the next step is we need to kill these guys since they've been delivered to us on our doorstep here. Might as well take them out, right? Look at verse 22. But he answered, here's Elisha now. You shall not kill them. Would you kill those whom you have taken captive with your sword and your bow? You know, he says, set food and water before them that they may eat and drink and go to their master. Then he prepared a great feast for them. There was no bread and water. Prepared a great feast, and after they ate and drank, he sent them away, and they went to their master. 
So the bands of Syrian raiders came no more into the land of Israel. So he asked them, you know, when you capture prisoners of war, do you take them back to your land and then kill them? I mean, that's not the normal way of doing things. But then he presents them with even a higher standard, a godly standard of blessing your enemies. And as they did that, it had an amazing result, you know? Their enemies decided to stop attacking them. That's, that's huge. So even though God's ways may not make sense to us, especially when we first hear what the Lord wants us to do, we're like, are you for sure, Lord? Is this really what you want? You know, it doesn't look like a good plan. But when we listen and obey him anyway, we may be shocked at the results. You know, and we may even end up with an amazing testimony to share on top of all that. Can you imagine the stories these guys have? We went to work as an armor working for the king that day, and all lo and behold, Elisha walks in with the entire Syrian group of raiders here and brings them right in front of us. And then, oh, you guys must have killed them, right? No, God said, don't kill them. He said, feed them. You what? Yeah, we had a big barbecue feast and fed these guys, and they said, you know, we're not going to attack you guys anymore. Okay, we'll see you later. Bye. <laughs> you know? So what a testimony. So if there's somebody here or if there's somebody listening, you know, as we've been going through this, this chapter up to this point, and they're going through a really difficult time in your life, maybe your accent has fallen off like the beginning story we had here and you lost your spiritual edge, or maybe you feel that you're completely surrounded by your enemy and it looks like there's no way out, then we can pray. That's what we need to do is pray and ask the Lord to help us get our edge back and open our eyes to see, you know, how he's constantly protecting us and how he can find us a way of escape from any enemy attack, right? Because Jesus loves us very, very much, right? Let's go on to verse 24. And it happened after this, that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his army and went up and besieged Samaria. Remember, Samaria is the capital of the northern kingdom there. So we're not given any time element of how much time passed between verses 23 and verse 24 here. But at some point, the Syrians must have forgotten the kindness that they were shown by the God of Israel. And now the king of Syria decides it was time to attack Israel and go to war against them. This isn't a skirmish now. This is a, an all-out war. He's going after the capital of Israel, okay? I guess it makes sense here when you think about it because there are times we've got a short memory too, right? When, when the Lord takes care of us. You know, the Lord might have supernaturally provided for us when we had an unexpected bill come in and we were so grateful when the Lord made a way for that bill to be paid. But the next month comes along and we're hit with another crisis, right? And we're in fear and wonder, what are we going to do? <laughs> so if we can forget the amazing provision of the Lord at times, and we've got the Lord living in us all the time. It kind of makes sense that, you know, these Syrians who really had no personal relationship with the Lord would forget how God spared them earlier and when they were blindly led into the heart of Samaria by Elisha the prophet and, and they survived. You know, they forgot that. And it's a shame, I know, but um, earlier when they were blindly led into the heart of Samaria there, that, that memory didn't last as long as you might hope. But you think about Nineveh, too, the whole town got saved, right? And next generation attacked Israel. So it's kind of the way it goes. Somebody said this, you know, we've got a good forgetter. <laughs> and that's why the Lord has to remind us things over and over in his word. So hopefully we don't get offended. Lord keeps telling us, I told you this already. I'm going to tell you again because we need to hear it. we got a good forgetter. Now, it says here that they were, they were besieging Samaria. 
when you would besiege a city like that, it meant that you completely surrounded it by your military forces and you cut off any and all supplies going into the city. Also, you'd have the city locked down where no one could leave. So the goal would be to starve the people and wear them down to a point where they were so weakened that they had no choice but to surrender. I guess they kind of had two choices. They could either surrender or starve to death. Those were your two options there. Now, these sieges would last for as long as it takes to get the city to run out of food and then finally surrender. And I've heard that some of these sieges lasted for one to three years. Kind of depended on how much food the city had within its walls to sustain it. You know, in our, our culture, we wouldn't last very long because the stories would run dry in three days and our cupboards would end up, whatever we got left, last us a little while, but it wouldn't be too long. So can you imagine waking up in a place like that and wondering if your food was going to last another day or another week? And it might be kind of hard for us to picture because, you know, we're so spoiled. We're used to having such an abundance of food around us all the time. You know, we have a hard time figuring out what do we want to eat today. We've got so many options. But you wonder how bad things can get when you're stuck in a situation like that. And we're going to get to see some of that, unfortunately, in the passage here. Look on to verse 25. There was a great famine in Samaria. And indeed, they besieged it until a donkey's head was sold for 80 shekels of silver and one-fourth of a cob of dove droppings for five shekels of silver. So this great famine, it was brought on by the siege. That's why it was such a famine. There's no food coming in. The only thing they had was whatever was in their, their place there. So this plan was very successful from the viewpoint of the king of Syria. And the donkey's head, it mentions here, was something that people didn't normally consider eating at all when the times were good and things were going okay. You know, it'd be thrown out kind of as part of the garbage, stuff you just don't don't eat. And remember, a donkey, too, is considered an unclean animal, so it was normally untouchable for food anyway. You wouldn't even consider eating any part of the donkey, much less the head that's probably not got much there that you'd want to eat anyway. But beyond that, the people were so hungry, they were not only willing to eat the donkey's head, they're also willing to pay a very high price for it. It tells us how much it costs here to even buy something like this. And I know it's not anywhere close this, this, to uh, the type of situation they're in, but I want th- you to think about a type of food that you would not normally eat, something that really doesn't appeal to you and stuff that you go, uh, even though some people might consider it food and they might eat it, you know. One of the things that comes to find mind for me is that that little piece of the chicken wing, you know, that piece at the very end that doesn't really have anything on it but kind of a gristly fat, that part... Uh, I usually don't even consider eating that part. Maybe some of you like that. I don't know. But for me, it's like, ah, no, I don't think so. But can you imagine that you're so hungry that you'd be willing to pay, say, a couple hundred bucks for just that little piece, you know, to have something to gnaw on, to make your body feel like I got some food coming in. That, that's kind of the situation. You can substitute anything you kind of see as a disgusting thing to eat right now. <clears throat> but... If you were starving, you'd be amazed how good that piece of disgusting food would sound. I mean, in our own time, we know about Venezuela, if you kept up with some of the news there, and how their economy crashed and they're suffering because of it. They're eating dogs. They're eating, and these are their pets. They're eating dogs and any dogs they can catch. They're eating uh, cats. 
The, uh, the zoo has released some of the animals because they can't feed them and people are eating those things, you know. They're even people, they said prisoners are eating rats. I mean, that's all they can get a hold of. You'd be amazed what you would do when you're hungry. We saw a, a group of missionaries in years past who were in one of these, uh, we would call uncivilized areas, a tribal kind of a group there, and they didn't have the food to keep them up either. So what they were doing was they'd actually take bark from the trees and grind it up and kind of make like an oatmeal paste and they would eat it even though it basically has no nutrition at all in it but it would fill their belly so the body would stop craving that that food to just to give them a few moments of that so it mentions here the donkey head it also mentions the dove droppings in the verse here and that's an interesting thing too some people actually refer to the dove droppings and say that's really what it was and some say there was actually an herb back then that grew that was kind of a bulb-type plant, had the, the bulb root and these little white uh, bulbs there that were balls of, that would shoot off of the roots. I kind of see it like little bitty radishes or something. But either way, uh, they said that whatever food you're calling it here is very small amount of nutrition in it, very small amount. So the price they would pay for just these little bulbs, okay, whatever this little handful of food is they're talking about, um, it would, the five shekels of silver was more than a month's wages for the common working man. So if that's what they paid for the little bulbs, imagine what they paid for that donkey head. We're talking a lot of money. Yeah, so verse 26 goes on. Uh, it says, Then as the king of Israel was passing by on the wall, a woman cried out to him, saying, Help my lord, O king. So here's the king. He's walking around the wall that was designed to protect his city, and now it's become a prison wall keeping them trapped by their enemies. And while he's walking, this lady cries out, and she's begging him for some help. And it, it's interesting because it shows us the king's attitude where he's at. Verse 27, he said, If the Lord does not help you, where can I find help for you? From the threshing floor or from the wine press? You know. So he's being sarcastic here, and it sounds like he's blaming God for not caring about them. It's like if God's not taking care of you, psh, what do you expect from me? So I see him pointing his finger at God. But remember, these people are fully into idolatry. They're not walking with the Lord. And isn't it crazy that people who are not walking with the Lord, they start blaming God when things go wrong in their life. I know you see it over and over like I do, and it's like you don't get it. You're not walking in God's way. So when everything crashes and falls apart and don't work, there's a reason for that, you know? So don't blame God. So this, this king, it sure sounds like that's what he's doing. And he goes on with his sarcasm as he said, you know, do you want me to go to the threshing floor or go to the wine press to get you something? <laughs> so by this time during the siege, his thre threshing floor would be completely bare and the wine press would have been completely dry. So it's kind of like the saying, you can't squeeze blood from a turnip. I mean, you're asking for something that's impossible. So verse 28, then the king said to her, what is troubling you? So it's not like he didn't want to hear, but he's got nothing else going on, so... What is troubling you? She answered. This woman said to me, give your son that we may eat him today and we will eat my son tomorrow. So we boiled my son and ate him. And I said to her the next day, give your son that we may eat him. But she has hidden her son. Now the Lord had warned Israel that if they refused to obey him, they would come to this unbelievably low point. Look back to Deuteronomy 28 for a minute to see amazing details the Lord gave them. In warning, you can have a choice here, my extreme blessing, or you can find some pretty bad judgments coming your way. Deuteronomy 28, 
you look down to verse 52 in that passage, the Lord said, they shall besiege you at all your gates. This is verse 52 in Deuteronomy 28. They will besiege you at all your gates until your high and fortified walls in which you trust come down throughout all your land and they shall besiege you at all your gates throughout all your land which the Lord your God has given you. You shall eat the fruit of your own body, the flesh of your sons and your daughters whom the Lord your God has given you. These are gifts from the Lord, these children. In the siege and desperate straits which your uh, enemy shall distress you, the attentive, I'm sorry, the sensitive and very refined man among you. These are people that are upper echelon, okay? Uh, he will be hostile toward his brother, toward the wife of his bosom, toward the rest of the children whom he leaves behind, so that he will not give any of them the flesh of his children whom he will eat, because he has nothing left in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. The tender and delicate woman among you, this is a very refined woman, uh, who would not venture to set the sole of her foot on the ground because of her delicateness and her sensitivity, will refuse to the husband of her bosom and to her son and to her daughter her placenta which comes out from between her feet and her children whom she bears. For she will eat them secretly for lack of everything in the siege and desperate straits in which your enemy shall distress you at all your gates. So these people who are surrounded here in our passage in 2 Kings chapter 6 here, these people who are surrounded by the Syrian army, they are under the judgment of God and they brought this on themselves by their disobedience. You know, somebody said that God's law not only protects us from the evil in others, but it protects us from ourselves. These people were normal people before this siege happened and because of the extreme famine, look how low they're willing to sink. They are doing things they never thought they'd be capable of doing. If this were prophesied to them, it was, but if, if Elisha personally came and told them, you're gonna be eating your kids within the year, they just said, you're insane, get out of my house. They would kick them out and they're there. So one of the th saddest things about this mother we saw in the passage here too, She's not upset, upset at all about the loss of her child, you know? She's upset because she's not getting the meal of her, her other mother's child. That's what's upsetting her. And the Lord wants us to see, you know, that he meant what he said when he told them, this is how low you will go if you don't obey me, if you walk away from me. And he wants us to know that, that he is even capable of protecting us from the evil within ourselves. This should motivate us to obedience, right? We should say, Lord, please never let me walk away from you and never disobey you to the point where I would do something so evil and wicked and so low. It lets us see how dangerous it is to disobey the Lord. And speaking of this principle of getting away from God, how it can cause people to do some unspeakable things. In our country, abortion is one of those unspeakable things. Just like these ladies here, they wanted to fulfill their fleshly appetites and they were willing to kill their children to do so. People in our culture are willing to do the same thing just to fulfill their fleshly appetites. You know, this week I heard the Christian radio about a movie that's come out and I doubt that many have even heard about this movie. It's called Gosnell 
the most prolific serial killer in America, The Untold Story. Has anybody heard about this movie? Anybody heard about this? It's, it's, you haven't heard it because the media doesn't talk about it. They want you to know about it, okay? This movie's about a true story. It's about an abortion doctor in our own country. I believe it was Pennsylvania. He would allow the children to be born alive before he ended their life, okay? And there's other stuff he did. I won't mention that's really horrific things. But this story of this doctor is a picture of how unbelievably cruel and wicked someone can be when they live selfishly apart from the Lord. I want to tell you one amazing thing about this story, true story about this, this doctor they caught. And he is a, a serial killer. Uh, when they took this doctor to trial, all 12 jurors were pro-abortion. And they wanted that type of jury intentionally just to show that they were not tampering with the outcome. But by the end of the trial, every one of those 12 juries, jurors were now pro-life. That's how powerful that is. It's a very powerful movie. If you get a chance to see it, I think it's still in the theaters, but you'll have to look for it because they don't advertise. They don't want people to know about this. They kept all of the, the people that made the movie kept all the gore out of the movie because they don't want that to be a reason to turn anybody off. But it presents the ugly truth about abortion and about how to, their hope and goal is to educate people in our country on this evil tragedy and uh, they want to uh, know that, uh, let people see this. Is, once they see the truth of it in reality, to know this goes on every day in our homeland, you know, and it's even considered legal. And by the way, the vast majority of the media, they won't talk about this movie because of the topic of abortion. Abortion is to be kept silent in our country. It's not supposed to be brought up. That's why they attack so harshly trying to keep anyone who is pro-life off of the Supreme Court. That's why you saw the vicious attack you did against Judge Kavanaugh. It had nothing to do with anything else. That whole thing was the abortion industry trying to keep him out. And I have heard that the uh, Hollywood is uh, coming against this, this movement now that's pro-life. Uh, next year, they're supposed to come out with three pro-choice movies with big actors, big money in there, trying to show how heroic things were done to make sure that women still have a choice in this country. And it's straight from the devil. So if you get a chance to investigate this further, there's information about that guy on, on YouTube if you want to see more. Uh, it's interesting, very interesting story, how the Lord had him uh, exposed there. Our, greatest, our country's greatest shame is the killing and murder of the innocent babies, both in and out of their mother's womb. Uh, if you remember that late-term abortion that was brought in by President Clinton, uh, that was letting the baby's head come out and then killing the baby after the baby's head came out. So if you've had also an abortion in the past, the Lord came to forgive and heal you. Don't let the enemy beat you up over this. You can't go back and redo that. You can come to Jesus and receive forgiveness and comfort. And as the scriptures tell us, God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, that the world through him might be saved. So come to Christ and ask him to help you. And if you're sincere, he will. Let's go further, verse 30 here. <clears throat> it happened when the king heard the words of the woman that he tore his clothes. And as he passed by on the wall, the people looked. He's in a very public place so people can see him. People looked, and there underneath, he had sackcloth on his body. So this grieved the king. He ripped that clothes of, of siding like, like he just can't believe what this woman just told him about eating kids. But this guy's not a godly man, Okay. So the signs of mourning that he is showing are not signs of repentance. And that's sad. He, he was right there. He could have repented, but we don't see that in him. 
whatsoever's in a man's heart will come out of his mouth, the Lord shows us, right? So we can look what he says in these verses and about him, and that lets us know where he's at, and he's really not open to the Lord. He's not repenting. Uh, look for, further in verse 31. Then he said, God do so to me and more also if the head of Elisha, the son of Shaphat, remains on him today. So he's so angry at God and he declares he's going to kill God's prophet. That's his solution. Uh, so again, let's blame God when things go wrong, even though we're not walking in God's ways at all. You know, it's very typical of the world to do that. Verse 32, but Elisha was sitting in his house and the elders were sitting with him. So probably having a prayer meeting, somebody said. And the king sent ahead, uh, ahead of him, uh, before him a messenger. But before the messenger came to him, he said to the elders, Again, Elisha knows what's going on. He's got intel from the Lord. Do you see how this son of a murderer, and the king's dad was a pretty wicked guy and a murderer, do you see how he has sent someone to take away my head? He says, look, when the messenger comes, I want you to shut the door and hold him fast at the door. I want you to stall him. Is not the son of his master's feet behind him? So again, you can't sneak up on Elisha when the Lord's giving him a heads up that you're coming, Okay. Elisha not only knew, look what the Lord had shown him, not only knew there was a messenger coming, he also knew the king was coming that wanted to kill him, and he knew the king was on his way, so he's telling him to hold back to the messenger until the king arrives. So verse 33, while he was still talking with them, there was a messenger coming down to him. Then the king said, surely this calamity is from the Lord, and why should I wait for the Lord any longer? Now by him making that statement, why should I wait for the Lord any longer, it appears that Elisha must have told him that God's going to deliver Israel. It's going to get rough, but you guys just need to hang in there because God is going to deliver you. But the king was tired of waiting. We, we can appreciate that. We get tired of waiting a lot of times on the Lord, don't we? It's like, Lord, why didn't you do this yesterday? Yeah, but we've learned that the Lord is always on time, perfectly. He may not be as early as we'd like to see it, but he's always right on time. So the encouragement is, wait on the Lord. If he said something, he is going to do it for sure. He said he's coming. He is coming, okay? Let's go just a couple verses more to get kind of the end of the story here, and we'll stop. Verse seven, uh, chapter 7, verse 1, Then Elisha said, Hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord. So here's the king saying, I ain't waiting on God any longer. Elisha says, well, here's what God says. Tomorrow, about this time, 24 hours from now, a sea of fine flour shall be sold for a shekel, and two seahs of barley for a shekel at the gate of Samaria. Now realize, they didn't have any flour in the city. They didn't have any barley. So it does sound kind of wild and crazy. So verse 2, so an officer on whose hand the king leaned, this is his right-hand man, he answered the man of God, and he said, Look, if the Lord would make windows in heaven, could this thing be? And he said, so here's Elisha very calmly answering, In fact, you shall see it with your eyes, but you shall not eat of it. <laughs> so he wasn't going to live. He didn't know if he got that message, but it's coming. So they only had to wait one more day. You waited a long time, but it was just one more day. So when man is ready to give up, that's the time the Lord is starting to work. So you need to wait. And this foolish guy, the right-hand man here, he was trusting in his own thinking. And I like what somebody said, our own brain is an awful puny thing to trust in, you know? 
it'd be better to, much wiser to trust in the living and eternal God of the universe. The Bible says, professing, them, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. That's in the Romans 1 passage. Now this guy, okay, this, this right-hand man of the king here, he only saw one option, that it's impossible and it will never work. You know, he says, I don't care how big you think your God is, this is never going to work. If he opened a window of heaven, how's that going to work? How are we going to get that kind of food and that kind of price? Now we're going to see later on as well, again, but when all of our options are exhausted, God has options that we could never even imagine. That's why we should never give up, you know, when we're a child of God. Our God can do the impossible. And right here, the Lord ends with a very strong warning when Elisha says, you're going to get to see this miracle, but you won't get to taste any of it. So the Lord ends with a stern warning. Do not doubt or mock God's promises. Man, that's a strong warning to anybody in the world. You don't do that to the Lord. Get horrible consequences, okay? And sadly, the worst promise people can do is not receive Christ. The Lord said, you receive Christ, you have eternal life. All your sins completely forgiven forever. You get to live in eternity in my kingdom with all blessings and joy that go with that. To, to mock that one or doubt that one has eternal consequences that are not good. All right, we're going to stop at this point. Uh, let's go ahead and, and pray. Father, I pray today if someone has been listening to your word and they needed to hear these words of encouragement, Lord, please drive them home. Help us to receive fully what you've told us today. Help us to see you are the God who makes promises and keeps them. And Lord, we know that you have options that we have no clue what they are, but you have ways to get us out of things when we're stuck. And if somebody is stuck today, Lord, I pray today, let them surrender and say, Lord, I want to see your options. I'm ready to see what you have. Lord, we know it's going to be a great blessing, great testimony. We give you praise for that ahead of time, Lord, and thanksgiving. So, Lord, we turn all that to you in Jesus' precious name. Amen.